You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We read together verses 21 through 30. John chapter 8. And then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself. Will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Let's bow our heads and ask God's help as we study this morning. Our Father, we turn to your word because we know that in it is revealed everything that we need for life and for godliness. You have communicated to us a true and accurate and faithful revelation of your nature, your character, your grace, your plan of salvation. And without that, we would never have come to know you truly. We can see in creation your hand of power, your orderly conduct, your wisdom, your goodness, but we would never know of the way of salvation apart from your word and the revelation of you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask now, O God, that as we open your word, as we study it, we read it, that today you would grant that your people might be edified and equipped by your word, that you would draw our hearts together in oneness and unity and in love, adoration and affection for the Son, that we might honor the Son, and by honoring the Son, we might honor the Father. We pray, O God, that you would grant this for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the gospel that we have believed and the gospel that we preach is a Trinitarian gospel. I don't know if you've ever thought of it in these terms, but you cannot even really begin to describe what the gospel is or what the gospel does apart from some sort of a theological framework of the Trinity, because the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Think, for instance, actually, it would be better to say it this way. It is the deity of Christ which is central to our gospel proclamation. If Jesus Christ is not God, then you and I are sunk. If Jesus Christ is not God, then he cannot deliver on everything that he has promised to us. You realize that? Think of all that he has promised to us. He has promised us acceptance with the Father based upon his righteousness. He has promised us the sealing of the Spirit. He has promised us eternal life. He has promised to save us, to sanctify us, and to secure us, to forgive all of our sins, and to give us an infinite righteousness, and to forgive us an infinite debt. Now, Jesus Christ, if he is not the I am in human flesh, cannot deliver on all of those promises. Nobody but God can deliver on everything that Jesus promised. That is why a divine Savior, and I am in the flesh, is what we need to provide for us righteousness and to provide for us forgiveness 
and to cleanse us from our sins and to save us. We need a Savior who is God. Because if Jesus is not God, He can't deliver on everything that He has promised us. Our Gospel is a Trinitarian Gospel. Think of what the Gospel announces, what it proclaims. The Gospel says that the Divine Son came into the world to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, that is to suffer and to bleed and to die, and then to rise again to pay the sin price for any and all who will come to trust and believe upon Him for salvation. And that by doing this, He buys us or earns for us a righteousness that we need to stand before the Father. And that because of what the Son has done, we can be accepted by the Father, we are adopted by the Father, we are forgiven by the Father, we are loved by the Father, and we are treated by the Father as if we were His Son. Not because we have done anything good, but because of what the Son has done for us. And on top of that, we are then drawn to the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit, who changes our hearts and our affections, who gives us new life, new desires, a new heart, a new nature. He regenerates us and gives us new life. He dwells within us and He seals us until the day of our redemption. Now, do you know that in describing that massive sweep of, of salvation, who, who have I mentioned? I have mentioned all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think of what it is that the Gospel promises us. We are elect by the Father, the Son pays our debt, and the Spirit of God provides or applies to us what the Father purposed and what the Son purchased. In the words of John 6, the Father gave us to His Son, The Son said, I will redeem all of them, Father, and I will bring them safely to our eternal abode. I will lose none of them, and the Spirit will sanctify all of them, and I will raise all of them up at the last day. That's John 6. And all of those descriptions, you know who I keep mentioning? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Our Gospel is a Trinitarian Gospel. That is why it is impossible, if you get the doctrine of God wrong, to get the doctrines of salvation right. Show me a religious system or a movement or an ism or some group that gets the doctrine of God wrong, and I will show you a system that has a works-based, man-centered, dog's breakfast of the theology regarding salvation. Anybody who gets the doctrine of God wrong will inevitably, always, without fail, get the doctrines of salvation wrong. Because to describe salvation biblically, you have to have the nature of God correct. You have to believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's three persons, one God. Our gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. That is why in John chapter 8, when Jesus is offering salvation with the Father, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, it is in the context of Him proclaiming His own deity in the most absolute of ways. John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am, ego I me, you will die in your sins. John 8, 28. When I am lifted up, you, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. Three absolute, unqualified, clear declarations that He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the I am of Exodus chapter 3. He is the I am of the book of Isaiah, as we saw last week. Those unqualified, absolute statements of His deity and His absolute sovereignty, His equality with the Father, come in the context of these gracious offers of salvation. Do you remember that's what Jesus did in John chapter 5? He said, if you believe Me and My Word and believe Him who sent Me, you will not come into death, but you will pass from death into life, and I will raise you up on the last day. That was the promise in John 5. John 5 also describes His equality with the Father in authority, in judgment, in sovereignty, in power, and in nature. 
In John chapter 6, when Jesus graciously offered Himself as the bread of life to them and said, If you will believe upon Me, I will give you life eternal. You will never taste death, and you will never hunger, and you will never thirst, because you will have Me as the bread of life. It is in that context that Jesus describes Himself as equal to the Father when He says, The Father has given a people to Me, and I am going to come, and I, I have come, and I am going to save and secure all of those people, and I, as the sovereign judge, will resurrect them on the last day. I will raise them up secure, and I will not lose any of the Father's elect. That is a clear declaration of His own deity, His equality with the Father. And now we come to John chapter 8, and in the context of John 8, with all of this clear declaration of His own deity, We see Jesus once again offering eternal life, offering to deliver his people from their sin, from the power of sin, from the prince of sin, and from the penalty of sin. That's John chapter 8. Our gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Now we come to the end of verse 24, actually beginning of verse 25 of chapter 8. And what follows in these verses is an explanation of the claim in verse 24. Now as I was reading through this and studying through this, all the way through the gospel of John, I would always get to the end of verse 24. And I had a hard time sort of pinning, how does this fit in? How does this work? It seems like you have this declaration in verse 24 of His absolute deity, but then it was hard for me to understand how the verses that followed really fit in with that and what it is that Jesus was driving at. Why these subjects? Why does He go where He goes in verses 26 or 25 through verse 29 and 30, the end of this little section that we're dealing with? Then it dawned on me. Verse 24 is his absolute I am statement of equality with the Father. Verse 25 and following describes his relationship with the Father. What we read in verses 25 and following is Jesus describing his relationship to and his submission to the Father in his incarnation. That is what he is describing. So see, we have these two truths that we balance. We have to balance the fact that Jesus is eternally, fully, always was, without qualification, full deity, full deity, full Godhead, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is 100% God. And that in coming here to take upon Himself human flesh, He did not give up any of His deity. He did not give up any of His nature. He remained essential in His nature in one unity and one in unity and one in nature and essence with the Father, fully God. But at the same time, we affirm what seems to us to be contradictory, that he was very much man. Right? That seems to us to be contradictory. How can he be fully God and yet be tired, feel pain, weep, apparently not know certain things about the future, apparently not know some things? How is it that we see in Jesus Christ this seemingly contradictory truths, that he is fully God and yet he is fully man? Well, verse 25 and through verse 29 describes Jesus in four different ways that show us His humanity and His deity. After declaring Himself to be fully God in verse 24, He is going to go on to explain His relationship with the Father in terms of incarnation, condescension, humiliation, in terms of Him being the Son. So though He is equal with the Father, He describes His role as being submissive to the Father. Everybody follow that? All right, now you got it in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe in the deity of Christ, you will perish everlastingly. That is what Jesus says. Now verse 25, the Jews' question. I'm going to give you an outline, but it's going to be almost at the end of the message. So hold on for the outline. Verse 25. So the Jews were saying to him, Who are you? Now there's a question as to how we should read, Who are you? 
Interesting question, right? Really, they get to the issue of who is Jesus. But you could read that statement in three different ways. Who are you? Has to do with his identity. Or, who are you? Again, dealing with his identity. A third way, who are you? Now, do you hear the scorn in that? Who are you? This is not a question asking him his identity. They're not saying, oh, you claim to be God. Tell us more. Who exactly are you? They know who he has claimed to be. This question is filled with scorn and mocking ridicule. Leon Morris in his commentary on the Gospel of John says the you, that pronoun, the you there, is scornfully mocking. It is a mocking scorn of his claim in verse 24. As they say to him, and it would be like this. The emphasis is on you. It would be like saying this. You? Who are you? In other words, you can hear the disdain in their voice. Who are you to tell us that we will die in our sins? Who are you? Who do you think you are to proclaim yourself to be the light of the world? Who do you think you are to tell us that unless we follow you, we will perish everlastingly? Who do you think you are that you can tell us that our eternal destiny hinges upon our belief regarding you? Who do you think you are? That's the scorn of the question. Who are you to tell us these things? That's the question. It's scornful. Not only is it scornful, but listen, it is also willingly ignorant. It's willingly ignorant. Did they really not know who he was? We saw last week, they were without excuse when it came to who he claimed to be. Without excuse. In light of all of the miracles, in light of everything he said, all of his claims, all of the signs that he did, to now feign ignorance, to now suggest that they didn't know who he was, is willfully ignorant. And these men were willfully ignorant. And Jesus' response in verse 25 is veiled, I think, in part because these men were willfully ignorant. Look at verse 25 again. So they were saying to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Now their question is a scornful and mocking question. Jesus' reply to them is somewhat veiled and mysterious. It is as I have been saying to you from the beginning. Now it's kind of a difficult it's a difficult phrase to translate, and it's a difficult phrase to understand. Now, if you were to compare, in fact, if we were all to open up our Bibles and say, who has the NIV, will you read it? And if you have the New King James, will you read it? And the King James, will you read yours? You would find almost a, un- a, un- a unanimous way of translating that. Everybody would be in harmony, because all the major translations translate it the same way. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? But it's somewhat confusing. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, says this, There is an undeniable difficulty and obscurity about the sentence before us. All of the translators, I think, kind of catch the essence of it. But it has been that phrase has been understood differently throughout history because it's difficult to translate and it's, it's unclear. In fact, one commentary I read said, We may not even know what Jesus meant by this. Because it has been variously translated and variously understood. Let me give you a few examples of how it's been understood throughout history. The lack of clarity revolves around two things. Number one, what does Jesus mean by the word beginning? By beginning, there in the text. And second, the phrase or what he says can be rendered as a question or it can be rendered as an exclamation. It can be rendered either as a question or as an explanation. The question is, what does he mean by beginning? So here's how various people have understood it. Some, like John Calvin, thought that Jesus was referring to the beginning of his ministry. So they asked him, who are you? And Jesus would say, Jesus would be saying, what have I been saying to you since the very beginning that we've had these interactions? All the way back, go to the beginning of my ministry. My story has been the same. My claims have been the same all the way through. I'm not adding any new information. I have been telling you this for the last two, two and a half years. I've been telling you exactly who I am. From the very beginning of my ministry, I've been telling you all of these claims. And I'm not giving you anything new. 
I have told you over and over and over and over and over who I am, and you continue to reject me. That would be one way of understanding. Second, Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's right-hand man, understood the phrase to be this, Jesus referring to the beginning of the discourse. The beginning of the discourse. In other words, Jesus was going back to 8 verse 12. What have I told you from the beginning of this sermon? I told you at the beginning I am the light of the world. And he who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when they ask him, who are you? He's simply saying, I told you at the beginning of this discussion. 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. There's a third way of understanding it, and this one's a little shaky. This one was believed by Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce it. Augustine said that Jesus was referring to himself as the beginning. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the beginning. This is what I have been telling you. So he is referring to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, or the beginning and the end. He is using another divine title of himself and saying, I am the beginning, and this is what I have been telling you all along. There is a fourth way of understanding it, and this one I prefer, but the translation doesn't do this. I'll tell you why I prefer it in just a second. There's a fourth way of understanding Jesus' question, and this one was how, this is how John Knox, the Scottish reformer, understood Jesus' statement. Knox referred, uh, Knox understood Jesus to be lamenting, telling them anything at all. In other words, Jesus was saying, why, and Knox renders it as a question, why have I been saying to anything to you at all from the very beginning? In other words, it's a statement of exasperation with their continued unbelief. From the very beginning, why have I been talking to you? And you can understand why that would make sense with the context. It would. It would make sense in light of all of their rejection, their mocking, their rejection, their ridicule, their hatred, their hostility, their unbelief, and now he has told them who he is, and they say, who are you to say this? And Jesus basically gets to the point of saying, I've been saying this from the beginning. Why would I even say this? Why, why am I talking to you? Look, your patience would have run out a long time ago with these guys, right? Wouldn't it have? Sure it would have. My patience would have run out shortly after 1 verse 1 with the Pharisees. But Jesus didn't. But here he is saying something that seems so obvious to us. Why does he continue to talk to these guys? Why does he continue to say these things? That's the essence. That's what John Knox thinks it was. Now what are we supposed to understand him to be saying? I think let's just take what our translation says. I have been telling you this from the beginning. I think that's as good as any of them. Jesus just simply saying, he has been telling them this all along. His message has been the same. He knew from before his public ministry that he was God in human flesh. It was not a revelation that he came into late in his ministry. He's not springing on them anything new. He is saying to them, I'm telling you today the same thing I told you back at the very beginning of my ministry with our very first interaction. He is telling them the same thing really that he told Nicodemus and he told anybody who would listen. That he was the eternal I am and he came to pay the price for sin. Well, that's his answer. Now in verse 26, they obviously did not get who it was that he was speaking of. Verse 20, sorry, verse, no, sorry, that's verse 27. Verse 27, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus has been describing to them now, and he's going to begin describing to them his relationship with the Father, and he does so in four ways. He describes himself using four, I don't know if you call it analogies or metaphors or word pictures or what it is, but he describes his relationship with the Father in four ways that illustrate both his humanity and his deity. So he is going to describe now his humiliation or his condescension. He describes himself as a perfect judge, a perfect judge. He describes himself as a faithful messenger, one who came to say all that the Father gave him to say. He describes himself as a submissive son and then as an obedient servant. Now listen to that description. Last week we talked about him describing himself as the I am, 
the eternal one, the self-sustained, unsustained sustainer of the entire universe, the uncreated creator, the eternal, immortal, infinite, immutable God. And now, in the very next few sentences, he describes himself as a judge. And listen to the language of humility. A messenger, a son, and a servant. Those two truths are not incompatible. We believe that Jesus is fully God. At the same time, He is the submissive Son and the perfect servant. So let's look, at first of all, at the perfect judge. He is the perfect judge. Verse 25, So they were saying to Him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But He who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from Him, these I speak to the world. Verse 26 contains his description of himself as a perfect judge and as a faithful messenger. Jesus said, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. Now, they were obviously offended that he would suggest to them that unless they believed that he was the eternal I am, that they would die in their sins. And that offended them. That's why they said, who are you to tell us this? And what is Jesus' response? Does he back down? No. In fact, he says, I have many things to say concerning you. Right? What I have just said to you is the tip of the iceberg. You want to hear judgment? I could go on and on with the judgment that you will face for your rejection of the truth. I have many things to say and to judge about you, about your self-righteousness, about your unbelief, about your hatred for the one true God, and about your love for darkness. He could have gone on, couldn't he? All he suggested them was, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This infuriated them. Then he doesn't back down and he says, i got a lot more. A lot more that I could say, because he is the perfect judge. He said this to them back in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, For not even the Father judges anyone, verse 22 actually, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that they will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. There Jesus described himself as the perfect judge and the one who was going to judge on behalf of the Father. In verse 26, Jesus said, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So back in chapter 5, Jesus told them he was going to be their judge. Now in John chapter 8, he's saying, I have a lot of things to say concerning you and a lot of things to judge concerning you. He is the perfect judge. And what he says in the next phrase of verse 26 he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. What type of a judge is Jesus going to be if he judges on behalf of the Father? A perfect judge, because he's going to judge exactly as the Father wills, exactly as the Father thinks, exactly as the Father purposes and determines. Jesus is going to execute the Father's judgment perfectly. And the Father is a God of truth, and Jesus is a God of truth, and both of them are true, and their judgment is true, and their judgment is just, I have a lot to say concerning you, a lot to judge concerning you. The one who sent me is true. I'm going to judge on his behalf, and my judgment will be just and it will be true, because he always does, as he says in verse 29, the things that are pleasing to the Father. He is the perfect judge. He always judges in accordance with the Father's will. That's an act or a relationship of humility. Now look at the second description that he gives, that of being a faithful messenger. Verse 26, the things which I had heard from him, these I speak to the world. Jesus is not only a perfect judge, he is a faithful messenger. The things that I heard from the Father, these I speak to the world. All the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps reiterating this. In fact, John the Baptist said of Jesus back in chapter 3, what he has seen and heard of this, he testifies, indicating the Son's reliability, reliance upon the Father, and that everything that he's seen and heard, that he testifies truthfully. Jesus said in John chapter 7, 
My teaching is not mine, but Him who sent me. He says over in John chapter 8, verse 40, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Chapter 15, Jesus said to His disciples, No longer do I call you slaves, for slaves do not know what their master is doing. I've called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And then in His high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus said, The words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. All That's one of the themes of the Gospel of John. Jesus is the perfect servant, the perfect messenger, the one who came and faithfully delivered all that the Father gave Him to say. Now there's something about the language here that you and I need to be careful that we don't make too much out of. Because a whole book could be written on this, and then I would have to write a book review about how bad that book would be if it were written on the misuse of this phrase. Look at verse 26. That phrase, the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Now in what sense did Jesus hear from the Father? In what sense did he hear from the Father? I would agree with J.C. Ryle who said this is the language of accommodation. This is a type of description. It is descriptive language that describes the relationship between the Father and the Son, a language that is accommodated to our understanding and our limitations. Jesus is describing the relationship between himself and the Father, and he is doing so in terms that we can understand. Here's how you should not think of this. Here's how you should not think of this. That Jesus stood before the Pharisees, and he got moment by moment communication from the Father. And then he told them whatever, yeah, whatever the Father, the still small voice, got it, said to him. That's how you should not understand it. That's not what he's describing. He's not saying that he was ignorant of the truth until the Father revealed it to him. And then when the Father told him, he passed it on. Because he didn't know it beforehand. That's not what he's describing. That's no example for you and I, by the way. He's not describing some still small voice. Where you need to say, before you say anything, you need to listen for the voice of God as well. Because just as the Father spoke to the Son, quietly, in the still small voice, He'll speak to you too. That's not what Jesus is describing. What He is describing is an eternal, intimate, full communion that He has with the Father, so that everything He wills, everything He says, everything He purposes, everything He does, everything is in complete harmony and full unity with the Father. And that everything he does is the works of the Father. Everything he says is the words of the Father. Everything he does and gets is from the Father. There is an intimate, complete, full union that exists between the Father and the Son that is never and was never broken. It always existed. And it existed during his earthly time here. And what he said, what this is what he's saying, what I am telling you is exactly the word and the will and the declaration of God in heaven of the Father. Because of His union with the Father, He could speak the words of the Father. He is a perfect judge. He is a faithful messenger. That's language of submission, humility, condescension. Third, Jesus is the submissive Son. He's the submissive Son. This is in verses 27 and 28. He had been speaking to them of the Father in heaven, verse 27 says, but they didn't get it. They were oblivious to what He was describing. He was describing spiritual realities. They didn't, they didn't understand that. So Jesus goes on to describe in clearer language his relationship again with the Father, but he does it now in terms of his submission to the Father. His submission to the Father as a son and his perfect obedience to the Father's will as the Father's servant. Verse 27 and 28. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak 
the things that the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Those two verses describe him as the submissive son and an obedient servant. Let's deal with the submissive son for just a second, and our time is disappearing here, so we're going to have to kind of take a break and come back to this, finish up the obedient servant next week. There's a couple a couple phrases of language in verse 20. Uh, I keep losing my place. Verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing of my own initiative. Notice in verse 28 that Jesus describes himself again as the I am, that unqualified, absolute I am statement. Again, we see it in verse 28. But then he immediately after it says, I do nothing of my own initiative. Hold on a second. Now that's a bit curious, isn't it? How can you be the absolute eternal I am and do nothing of your own initiative? How do those two things go together? How can you declare yourself to be the eternal God, but then turn around and say that you don't do anything on your own by your own initiative? Those two ideas do go together because they are the two things that we've been talking about all morning, his deity and his humanity, but we need to flesh that out a little bit more. And then that other statement, again, Jesus mentions in verse 28, he does, he speaks the things as the Father taught me. And again, that is like we just described with hearing from the Father. It is the language of accommodation that describes this union. What I want to focus on for the remainder of our time is that first phrase right at the very beginning when he says to them, for when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And you will know that I am. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. That phrase lifted up refers to crucifixion. Every time John uses that phrase, lifted up, speaking of the Son being lifted up, he is speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He does it in John chapter 3 when Jesus said, For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus says, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And here in John chapter 8 is the third of those places where John uses the phrase lifted up. Now, here's something you and I have to be careful of. The term lifted up in John's Gospel refers to crucifixion, not worship. Not worship. Now I have heard worship leaders do this, not ours, thankfully. This would be very awkward, especially if I was, I was thinking, sitting there this morning, kind of going over things in my, my mind, and I thought, what if Mel says the very thing that I'm planning on criticizing? How will I handle that this morning? Mel's never done this, but I've heard worship leaders do this. They'll say, Jesus said that if he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. So let's lift up the Lord together today in praise, that he might draw all men unto himself. Because we use the language of lifting up to speak of lifting God up in praise. John is using the language of lifting up to speak of the crucifixion. He's not describing worship anytime he speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up. He's describing crucifixion. And who is it that he is telling or is saying is going to lift him up? When you, the unbelieving Pharisees, lift me up, then you, the unbelieving Pharisees, will know that I am. Ego I me. Again, an absolute unqualified statement of deity. Now here's the question. How and when and what would cause these unbelieving Pharisees to eventually recognize Him as the I Am? When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I Am. Implying that before they crucify Him, they will not know this and not recognize this, but sometime after they crucify him, then they will recognize and notice that he is the I am, the eternal God. What is he describing there? Two possibilities. There's, there's two ways that these men could come to know him as the I am. Number one is by being saved. Jesus could be describing the reality of among these Pharisees, some of them would become saved. They would crucify him and then they would say, what have we done? 
We have crucified him. Like the centurion at the foot of the cross who said, surely this man was the Son of God. Like Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, who would, after he was lifted up, come to unbelieve in him as the I am. The book of Acts describes many of the priests in Jerusalem coming to the faith and becoming obedient to the faith after the crucifixion during the preaching of the apostles. It might be that that's what Jesus is describing, in which case he's looking at some of these Pharisees, and listen, he knows who it is that belongs to him, because he says in John chapter 10, I know my sheep. I know who are mine. The Father has given to me a people. And if that's what Jesus is describing, then he is looking at a crowd of Pharisees, and he is seeing in that crowd some of them that the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world. And he is saying to them, once you lift me up, once you crucify me, there are some among among you who will come to understand who I truly am. And they will repent and they will believe upon him as the I am. There is a second way that people can come to understand and know that Jesus is the I am. And it's not by being saved, it's by being judged. By being judged. After the crucifixion, they would continue to reject the truth, cover up the resurrection, persecute the apostles. They, because they refused to bow the knee, would die in their sins and they would stand before whom? Before the I am. And they will receive their judgment. And they will know full well in the torments of hell for their sin who Jesus Christ is. And they will know it as truth and in reality. And that they will not deny for all of eternity. We kind of sometimes speak this way with situations in our modern day. Recently there was a a well-published popular atheist who died, never recanting his atheism. He spent his life warring against God, hating Jesus with all of his heart, claiming that God didn't exist, but that he hated the God that did not exist, and trying to get other people not to believe in that God. His name was Christopher Hitchens. He died of esophageal cancer. Is Christopher Hitchens an atheist today? No, he is not. He is not an atheist today. Now, I don't believe he was an atheist before he died either. Because, see, I don't believe there are atheists. Men know that God exists, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because it's evident to them. And they deny what they know to be true. They know it to be true. Romans says this. They know it's true. It's not that they don't have evidence. What's the problem? They love darkness. There's no such thing as an atheist. Atheists do not exist. Which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Atheists do not exist. So Christopher Hitchens was not an atheist when he lived here, but he said he was. Does he believe that God does not exist today? Do you think he wars against the truth that God exists today? He doesn't war against that. He wars against the God that he hates, and he still hates him. But Christopher Hitchens knows full well today who God is and who Jesus is. And by judgment, Christopher Hitchens has come to believe that Jesus is the I Am. There are some in this crowd of Pharisees who would come to understand that he is the I Am by salvation. There are some in this crowd of Pharisees who would come to understand that he is the I Am because they would be judged for their sin. Now, friends, here is where this whole doctrine of the deity and the humanity of Christ come to bear upon your life and mine. This is where the rubber hits the road, as it were. What we have seen this morning describes for us the glory of the cross. Our salvation was not purchased by an angel or by an animal sacrifice or by a mere man. Our salvation was purchased when and because the eternal God took upon himself human flesh and came here and suffered and died in the place of sinners. That is what purchased our salvation. That is what makes the cross so amazing. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, Paul says that God purchased the church with his own blood. Who was it that died on the cross? A mere man? A prophet? A teacher? A rabbi? A social revolutionary? 
Friends, the person who died on the cross was none other than the great I Am. The same I Am who spoke to Moses. The same I Am who led the children of Israel through the desert. The same I Am who parted the sea. He's the I Am. The one that died for us on the cross is the I Am. He condescended, took upon himself human flesh, and came here and lived and died for us. That is what makes the cross so glorious. Our God died. Our God shed his blood on a cross. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. That reminds us of the love of God for us, that God did not send an animal, he did not send a priest, he did not send a mere man or a prophet, he did not even send an angel to this earth to pay the price for sin, because an animal and an angel and a mere man could not pay the eternal and infinite price of sin, nor could they purchase for us an infinite righteousness. Our Savior had to be divine. That's why the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. The gospel says that God chose to save sinners. God came into the world in the form of human flesh through a virgin birth. God conceived in the womb of Mary, his son, who was God, and took upon himself human flesh. And God lived a perfect life on this world. And God suffered, and God bled, and God died on a Roman cross. And God raised himself from the dead three days later. What a glorious gospel, is it not? Our gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is our God in human flesh. And he is worthy of our worship, our adoration, our praise. You and I have been purchased by God. So we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to him. Because God purchased us himself by giving his life on a cross for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your eternal grace, your infinite grace, and your infinite righteousness, which is ours in Christ. Thank you for such a marvelous plan of salvation, which purposed in eternity past to save and redeem a people. And then thank you for taking upon yourself flesh, O Son of God, and coming to this earth and dying in our stead, paying that price for us. Thank you for bleeding. Thank you for dying. Thank you for the suffering. Thank you for the blood atonement which has purchased us and forgiven our sin. And we thank you, O Spirit of God, for applying that righteousness to us by regeneration, giving us the faith to believe, granting us repentance, drawing us to your Son, renewing our hearts, and giving us new life. All of this is your work, O God, from eternity past to eternity future, that you are saving, sanctifying, and securing your people for your glory. We thank you that we can be a part of that. Renew in our hearts afresh a love and desire to honor and glorify you, to shed forth our affections for you in the love that you give to us to give back to you. Thank you for your kindness, and thank you, O God, that you have made all of this possible through your eternal plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.